Senator Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, will give us those numbers from the month of November. See what farmer sentiment is. Is it more optimistic than it has been? Has it gone up or down? And some interesting questions in the survey this month concerning climate change and how farmers feel about that. We'll get into all those numbers coming up a little bit later on. And a special holiday show today. For years, I have uh, talked with author Ace Collins. He's written a number of books, but one of them was about the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. And music is such a big part of the Christmas season. Some of our uh, favorite songs have fascinating stories behind them, how the songs came about and how they became so popular and and right down to uh, who recorded them and why and things like that. So we're going to talk it over the second half of the program today with author Ace Collins, the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. All right, we're going to start things off on today's program by talking with Kevin Ross, president of the National Corn Growers Association. Lots to talk about. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, how you doing this morning, Mike? Very good. Uh, first of all, your reaction to the developments on USMCA. We're getting close now, it looks like, to a vote in the House at least this month. Yeah, we're uh, real excited to see that uh, finally finally get brought forward for a vote. Um, glad to see progress uh, moving there. I think as soon as this uh, moves through the House, you know, they're, they're talking. It'll be uh, probably in the next year before the Senate uh, takes it up, but... Uh, Regardless, a, a big step forward in, in uh, getting this trade agreement done, and and uh, hopefully that sets the stage for um, you know for some other ones to, to, to get work work moving on as well. From a corn grower perspective, is USMCA a significant improvement, or does it give you a certainty to make sure you keep what uh, you have as far as trade with Mexico and Canada? Yeah, for us, it's really all about the certainty aspect. It's it's taken. Uh, um, what what we had is a good deal before for, for agriculture for the most part, at least for corn for sure, uh, when it comes to trade with Canada and Mexico. But uh, we certainly see potential in those markets, uh, especially with, with Mexico and, and uh, future ethanol use. They've got a lot of air quality problems that uh, uh, we can help solve down there. But they're our number one corn uh, you know corn market for for export uh, or exported market there, and, and uh, just a big huge uh, you know piece for us to, to have. Um, certainty in that in that marketplace to make sure that we know moving forward there's not going to be um, any big hiccups there. And I think uh, when you saw uh, the concerns early on about about renegotiating this agreement, um, you know we saw the Mexican government and uh, folks down there start looking at different places to uh, to possibly originate their grain. And and uh, you know we want to be that reliable supplier and have that uh, close relationship that we do and continue that. Meanwhile, you still wait for an announcement on the RFS. What are you hearing? Yeah, we're um, you know continuing to, to uh, talk to the folks in D.C. and uh, hopefully get a, a positive resolution um, to the small refinery exemption uh, issue with the RFS. And uh, it's uh, you know I think it's it's about uh, about that time where we're going to find out one way or another how they finally rule on it. But uh, uh, certainly EPA has uh, sent some things to OMB on on uh you know on their potential uh plans and um we'd like to see that as that three-year rolling average of the uh of the exempted gallons um our you know our word is that's not uh not exactly what their plan is but uh um regardless of of how this thing comes out we've had a lot of people get really engaged on the issue and we certainly um know that uh you know we're getting told that we're going to have well over 15 billion gallons or certainly at least at that mark and higher uh, moving forward, and that's a positive. But uh, we gotta we gotta make sure that uh, we're continuing to stay vocal because these markets, uh, the biofuels market, and ethanol market, especially for for corn, is just so vitally important to our internal pricing and and uh, you know in the markets that uh, that chew the grain for us here at home. So we've heard talk again about maybe going to partial waivers and things like that. But whatever they do, the bottom line has to be 15 billion gallons. Has to be 15, right? Bottom line is we want uh, you know we want as many gallons in this in the marketplace as possible, and uh, it, you know in all these uh, uh, these plants grinding corn and uh, you know moving moving this uh, into the marketplace we've got to have uh, a robust ethanol market and continue to expand that in the future and and uh, uh, the, the waivers and exemptions that uh, that they were giving 
uh, and not reallocating and not not uh, you know not um, accounting for them within the process before was was not acceptable. And so, fact is, moving forward, uh, the, the fixes have to happen. And uh, we've been working, you know, so closely as you guys well know uh, for for months now on uh, trying to make sure this this outcome is what we want and how uh, how we feel they should be uh, uh, upholding the RFS and and. Um, uh, it wasn't being done. I think we've made significant progress in that area, but uh, it's not quite over yet. We're, we're still working to improve that issue. Yeah, the fact that it's not done yet and there still isn't an announcement, does that make you nervous or does that make you hopeful that they're going to get it worked out? You know, it, it, it gives me optimism still that uh, that we can get uh, a little bit better deal than, than what uh, what we had in there, what they what they had uh, pronounced or announced, excuse me. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the fact is when they agreed to something with our senators here a few months ago, too, and, and they didn't come out with the same, uh, uh, with the same numbers, that, that is a problem. You know, that's, uh, that's one of those things that causes you more mistrust at, at an agency that uh, uh, hasn't, been, hasn't been known for uh, uh, being our friend in a lot of places anyway. So, um, you know, we're trying to fix those issues. We want to work with people. We want to work with, uh, with the EPA to make sure that uh, – um, we're doing the right things for agriculture, and they're doing the right things for us on the farm, um, and that uh, you know we can we can move forward in a in a positive way for the country. So uh, we're going to continue to do that, and um, you know bust our butts every day to to uh, make sure that uh, that the the farmer comes out on top of these issues. And of course, the other big uh, item uh, is uh, China, and the president now tweeting he thinks uh, we're close again uh, with the deal for a deal with China. Well, I'd sure like to think that's the case, Mike. Uh, I can tell you that um, uh, there are—it's just a complicated issue, you know, a complicated issue. There's so many factors that 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 don't revolve around agriculture that this thing's about, and that's—I uh, um, think—I think when uh, when it comes down to it, though, uh, China needs our ag products. Um, they need they need our meats. They need our grains. Um, they've got a, a lot of people, and they've got an economy that can that can work with us and, and, and uh, purchase our products. But uh, um, you know, we've got again a complicated issue ahead of us. Uh, hopefully, they can get their their uh, swine disease issues figured out, and uh, and we can be exporting more soybeans back over there again. Um, but uh, you know, we had an ethanol market that was just on the rise there in China too, and and when all these tariffs kind of came into into play, it really kind of hammered that stopped uh, stopped our exports there for a while. Um, but we're ready and willing to to, uh, to supply them with the ethanol they need because uh, we, <laughs> if you've been there and I've been there a few times, uh, the air quality issues there are are horrendous, and uh, it is um, it's something that we know we can help address, and certainly for their people, they can uh, they can make a big step in the right direction as well. All right, Kevin, good to talk with you. Thanks and Merry Christmas. Hey, Merry Christmas to you, Mike. Appreciate the time. Take care, Kevin Ross, President of the National Corn Growers Association. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Your local FS is member-owned, and that means when you buy our flagship brands like FS Envision and FS High Soy, you're actually buying seed from yourself. And you wouldn't sell yourself anything but the best, would you? In field after field, FS brands are out-yielding the competition. Talk to your local FS crop specialist about Envision corn or high soy soybean seed today. At harvest, you'll be glad you did. Envision and high soy are available exclusively at your local FS member company. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, the country of origin labeling issue is uh, a controversial one. Strong views and emotional opinions on both sides of this. There's a lot here to uh, sort through, and we're going to do that now with Ethan Lane, who is Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. What we're starting to look at and zero in on is whether or not that broad 
description product of the USA is really too ambiguous to be used. I mean, it's important to, to make clear here, we don't think anybody is doing anything wrong. We, we don't think that, that anyone's outside of the boundaries of what's compliant right now with FSIS's guidelines. What we're talking about and, and working through with everyone in this value chain is whether or not we're just at a point where we need to get out of the business of putting a broad label like that that's fairly ambiguous in place in favor of either no origin marketing claim or a more specific marketing claim. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We continue to take a look at the monthly Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer numbers, and now we have the November numbers to look at, and it looks like farmer sentiment is up, or was up in November. Here to give us those numbers is Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist. Michael, thanks for joining us. So we saw a little jump in November? Yes, we definitely did. Uh, The index jumped from 136 to 153, but what was particularly interesting is we saw a rather large jump in the index of current conditions. Uh, when we've spoken in the past, I've always indicated that the index of future expectations was higher than the index of current conditions. In November, they're the same index number. And so I think that's very interesting that, uh, uh, that producers, in, in November at least, were just as optimistic short-term as they are in the long-term. Uh, well, I wonder if the numbers would, would, were swayed by whether or not a farmer had the harvest done at the time. I think there was. A, I think the harvest had probably had something to do with it. I think in the eastern corn belt where I'm I'm located, I think the harvest was a pleasant surprise. I think yields were a little stronger than what people were anticipating, and so I think that certainly helped, uh, particularly in the eastern corn belt. Um, and, and so, yeah, certainly those that uh, still have and still have some crops in the in the field probably weren't as optimistic as those that have done. Well, we've seen some up and down throughout the year. How do the November numbers compare with uh, earlier in the year? It, it really has been quite variable this year, but the, the index now is as high as what it was in July uh, before that August crop report. Uh, and in July, uh, you'll remember that corn futures rose above 450. And so that's saying quite a bit. Uh, but, but uh, uh, you know, in mid-November, uh, the corn and soybean futures are a little stronger, particularly soybeans, than what they are now. And so it'll be interesting to see what the numbers look like in December uh, compared to November. Yeah, the December numbers, uh, when we have those, um, well, and also then you'll have the numbers for the entire year. It'll be an interesting uh, look back uh, through the through the year because 2019 was such a challenging year. 
Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, certainly given given the challenging year that we had, it, it's, it's a bit surprising that the index was as strong as it was in November. But but like I said, I do think there's some people that uh, were, were somewhat surprised uh, by how well the, the, uh, the harvest was in 2019. And, and uh, we needed a fall that was fairly cooperative. And at least in the Corn Belt, we had that. Or in the Eastern yes. Corn Belt, we had that. Yeah, some got it, some some didn't, obviously. We're talking with the Purdue yeah. Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer talking about the November numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. All right, you always ask them about farmland values and their views. What did they say in November? Well, the, the farmland values, we asked a question looking at farmland values 12 months from now and five years from now, and they're certainly, they're certainly more optimistic that there's going to be price increases uh, of five years from now but interestingly enough, the percent that thought there was going to be increases uh, in the next 12 months rose to 16%. Uh, that compares to 11% that thought farmland values were going to decline uh, in the next year. And so there's more optimism uh, regarding farmland prices in the next year than there has been for quite some time. I, I thought that was quite, a bit, quite interesting, and, and certainly that's consistent uh, with the fact that the index of current conditions uh, improved. As the trade war with China has drug on, and we've had lots of ups and downs there, but it seems like in talking with you each month that the farmers have been fairly optimistic on on this getting resolved favorably uh, throughout the year, even during some low times. Uh, they still seem fairly optimistic. Yeah, so we've asked people point blank whether the, whether the trade dispute is going to eventually uh, be advantageous uh, to, to U.S. agriculture. It's worded slightly different than that, but that's the essence of the question. And anywhere from 75 to 80 percent indicate that this, in the long term this is going to be beneficial uh, to U.S. agriculture. That number reached 80 percent in November, and so it can't consistent uh, with, with, the, with the higher index. Probably more interestingly, though, we ask another question whether this trade dispute will be settled soon. And uh, over over 50% indicated in November that they thought it was going to be settled soon. And if we, we think back in November, there was some, there was some uh, rumors uh, that there was some progress being made on, on the, with the trade dispute, and I think that, that, uh, that drove that answer. But it also improved optimism. Yeah, I guess uh, depending on the timing, right, to ask the question if the rumors that day were more positive than, <laughs> than they are at other times, uh, the timing was key on that one. Definitely. All right. I, I thought a very interesting question, and I'm anxious to see the results here. Uh, you ask, how worried are you, if at all, about climate change? What did farmers say? Quite a few, uh, quite a few of the farmers were not particularly worried about climate change. In fact, 47, 47% indicated they, they were not worried at all. Another 31% uh, thought they were not too worried. And so uh, they weren't particularly worried about, about, about climate change. Per se, but we ask that in a fairly generic sense. Um, you know, if you, if you ask him questions about uh, 2019 being repeated, something a little bit more specific, uh, certainly that would have been a, been a different answer. And I think we, we're going to try to dig into this a little deeper. I think one of the things going on here is there's a lot of confidence that with different management practices and, and with, with innovation and with technology, uh, you know, we can overcome any problems that, that, that problems that may occur uh, due to climate change. And so in the, in the future, we're going to try to dig into that a, a little bit deeper. But I know uh, in other surveys, they've, they've found that, uh, that people are confident that we'll be able to respond uh, to changes in the climate. Well, kind of going along with that, I think you did ask uh, if they've made any changes in their operations because of climate change. Yes, we did ask a question related to that. It wasn't specific to... Uh, to, to specific management practices or, or certain technologies, which we will, we will eventually ask those questions. But 22% uh, said already they've made some changes in their operation. We would like to little, dig a little deeper. Uh, as you know, there's been a tremendous increase in tile drainage, uh, for example, in, in the Corn Belt. We'd like to ask a question related to tile drainage, uh, you know, pivots. Uh, there's been more pivots since 2012 drought. And so we'd like to dig into that a little deeper and, and look at specific practices, specific technologies that they may have adopted, uh, you know, due to, due to uh, climate change worries. 
I think this is going to be interesting to monitor moving forward because it's pretty obvious this is going to be a a big discussion point uh, nationally as well as globally, and eventually the impacts of that discussion will come back on agriculture. Definitely, and we'd like to. We'd also like to ask a question down the road, just related to uncertainty in general. Um, you know, one of the things that one of the things we've talked about in the past is the fact that the barometer has been quite variable. Uh, and so we'd like to dig in a little deeper, uh, you know, uh, and ask some questions related to uncertainty and then track that over time. And so as the uncertainty diminishes a little bit, how does that impact, how does that impact optimism? And, and the reason why I'm saying that in terms of climate change is climate change is just one of those things that's probably adding to long-term uncertainty. Yeah, it's interesting uh, when you add questions like climate change into the survey because that you kind of go with the, you look at some of the issues that are impacting agriculture now and into the future, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, so you do add these questions as you go along uh, with the survey. Yes, and, and we, we also would like to ask some questions, and this is a little harder to pinpoint exactly what to ask. We'd like to ask some questions about sustainability. Uh, a lot of agribusinesses have, 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 have either started programs or are thinking about starting programs uh, looking at sustainability you know, to try to encourage certain practices. And so we, we would like to start asking similar questions like that, uh, along with the other questions that we ask. I always think it makes it, makes it a little more interesting when we're talking to, talking to you guys and, and uh, uh, you know, talking to farm, farm and farms and agribusinesses to, to kind of have some different questions. Yeah, and but, questions so they're like... All related to, it's all related to this long-term right. uncertainty. I think that's a topic we really want to delve into questions like broadband access and those kind of issues very much yeah. impact uh, uh, a farmer's operations and, and how they view uh, the future for their operation. Definitely, and that broadband one would be a really good one to ask because, you know, obviously with the technologies that, that, we're, that we're adopting, we need, we need high-speed Internet. For sure, and I know some groups have been doing some of that survey work and 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 seeing you know what the access availability is to farmers and uh, the impact it's having on farmers not being able to access it and the things they're not being able to do and use the technology that's available to them. So yeah, that'll be a, yes. a big issue moving forward as well. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Always interesting to look at these numbers month to month, and the next time we talk, we'll be able to look at the whole year of 2019. Look forward to that. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, with the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, showing that farmer sentiment was up in November. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You can't buy a best friend. You can love them, walk them, pet them, and care for them, whether they want you to or not. You can take a picture or 50. You can fly to the moon, travel the world, or just stay in bed. You can't buy a best friend like that but you can adopt one. There are millions of pets waiting for a best friend just like you. Help us save them all at bestfriends.org. With Make-A-Wish, the impossible becomes possible. A girl battling cancer can become a race car driver battling the course. The boy showing all the nurses his fire trucks can take the helm of a real one. Wishes can give kids with critical illnesses the strength to keep fighting, get better, and grow up. Where there's a wish, there's a way. Wishes need you. Visit makeawish at wish.org. 
Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. President Trump writing in a tweet on Thursday morning, getting very close to a big deal with China. They want it, and so do we. Sources say that U.S. negotiators are offering to cut existing tariffs by as much as half on roughly $360 billion of Chinese-made goods. Export sales of U.S. corn and wheat both exceeded the upper end of trade expectations. Corn sales totaling 873,500 metric tons for 2019-2020, up 28% from the prior four-week average. Mexico, the prime corn buyer. An hour into the day, March corn up six and a half cents at 377 and three quarters. Soybeans, January up seven and a quarter at nine dollars and three quarters of a cent. March soybeans, nine fifteen and a quarter, up seven and a quarter. Chicago wheat, March contract up ten and a quarter, five twenty-nine and a half. Kansas City wheat march up nine and three quarters at four forty and a half. Minneapolis spring wheat march up six and a half, five twenty-four and three quarters. Export sales of both beef and pork a little light for the week ending December 5th. According to the Wire Talk, beef sales for 2019 totaling 9,900 metric tons. Sales for 2020, only 2,000 tons. South Korea and Japan were the biggest buyers of U.S. beef in that report. February live cattle steady at 125.32. Feeder cattle, January down 35 at 142.42. Lean hogs, February up a dollar twenty-five, sixty-eight ninety-seven. On Wall Street, the Dow up two hundred ninety-five points. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to invent help. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Over the years, I have often uh, talked with author Ace Collins about one of the books he's written about our favorite Christmas songs. It, it's It's been one of the most popular uh, interviews I've done each year. I get a lot of comments uh, from listeners about how much they enjoy hearing from Ace and uh, about the stories of our favorite Christmas songs. And he joins us now. Ace has uh, authored several books, but uh, the one about stories behind our favorite Christmas songs is a particular favorite of mine. And Ace, uh, thank you for joining me and our audience and uh, I'm, I'm, it's always a, a pleasure to talk with you, especially at this time of year. Thanks for being with us. It is a joy to be with you all. I, um, you know, you mentioned that. I, I, uh, on the favorite Christmas book, th- this was a book that got rejected 27 times over 10 years before it found a home. So, uh, and now it's sold over a million copies. So, I mean, it, it is a bizarre thing to think that so many people rejected it for so long, and then it, then it became so popular after it came out. And it's led to me actually writing ten more books, three novels and and eight non seven nonfiction books about Christmas. And so, of the ninety six books I've written and uh, and have had published, over ten percent of them are about this holiday. And I can't think of a better thing to be remembered for than the guy who spent a lot of his time researching and writing about Christmas. Well, music is such a big part of the season, and 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 some of these songs uh, uh, go back you know, centuries and have such fascinating stories about their origins. Um, when, And we talk about this often, Ace, 
one of the amazing things about Christmas time is it's timeless because all of a sudden Bing Crosby and Perry Como, they're back on the radio. They're not at any other time, but now they're back on the radio. You know, I've mentioned this in the past. It, it is amazing to think of somebody that has been forgotten like Dinah Shore, who is before our time, but Dinah Shore charted over 400 times, but she never had a Christmas record. And so she's forgotten. Uh, people like Judy Garland, who only only charted about 15, 20 times in their entire life, have Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and we hear her each and every year. Perry Como is probably another example of somebody who was who would have been forgotten but you can't imagine Christmas without, there's no Christmas like a home Christmas and, and the other many, many Christmas offerings that Perry gave us. So you're, you're right. It is a time machine that comes back and visits us. And if, you, if you're like me and you, you look at a specific ornament or a specific color light, my grandmother only had blue lights on her tree. And so every time I, I see uh, a blue light on a Christmas tree, I remember my grandmother and I'm taken back in time and I'm at that moment, and I can smell the smells coming from her kitchen as she cooks. I can see her tree. I can hear her voice. Therefore, unlike any time of the year, Christmas is uh, something that erases the years and makes us all young again and renews relationships with people who have gone on and puts them into really sharp focus. And I think the music probably does that more than anything else. Um, you, know, you, know, you mentioned... Christmas music that comes back. You mentioned Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby's Christmas hit, the first one in 36 with Oh Come All You Faithful, his recording of that for charity, uh, clear up to introducing White Christmas on Christmas Eve 1941 on his radio show. It became the number one song of 1942. 1943, he introduced a song written by three songwriters about missing a girl when they were college students, and it was I'll Be Home for Christmas. Imagine that 12-line song and what it meant in World War II to when you had 11% uh, of the American population in uniform uh, all over the globe, not knowing if they were going to come back or not. And yet, no matter where you are, you're listening to Bing Crosby sing, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And it is moving you to embrace the Christmas spirit and, and maybe, if you will, a secular prayer that Someday all of those places at the table will be filled again. And then Bing also introduced a Bob Hope song. Um, uh, two songwriters wrote Silver Bells for Bob Hope's movie The Lemon Drop Kid in the 50s. And uh, Hope was so thrilled to finally have his shot at a Christmas hit, and he put off recording it. And when Bing heard it, he recorded it, and Bing got Bob's hit on on Silver Bells. And by the way, the original name of Silver Bells was Tinkle Bell, and the wife of the songwriters, the wives of the songwriters, suggested they change it to sing Silver Bells that had a better ring to it. Um, but, you know, those classic songs, there's just wonderful stories behind each one of them, and there's also wonderful memories for all of us that go when we hear those songs as well. Yeah, my family's used to hearing me say every year, uh, you know, Bing Crosby it's not officially a Christmas song unless Bing Crosby sings it. That's just, they've gotten used to me saying that because I associate him and his voice with the season so so closely. Now, many of these songs, as I said earlier, that we still sing today, their origins go back centuries, right? I mean, uh, and uh, who would have thought they would still be as popular today and so, tr so much of our tradition as they are still today? Yeah, you, you always question why does one song has that ability to stay and linger and last forever, and others disappear very, very quickly. And I think it's really only one or two songs a generation that take root and, and grow on us. If you look back through the generations, you'll find one or two. Uh, Winter Wonderland in the 30s and, uh, is a classic example of one that was born that probably shouldn't have been a hit, but is and still comes back each and every Christmas. Uh, another song from the 30s that was popular, that has remained uh, popular, and um, you better watch out, you better not shout, uh, cry, Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, that song right there was written for Thanksgiving Day Parade, and, and it became this monster hit uh, after being played on national radio on that time. But you also go back to 
most of us, if we've been caroling, sing Gloria, because it's such an easy song to sing Gloria and Excessive Dales. And when we listen to that song, it's a French carol is what it's listed as, because that was the first place it was published. But the song goes back to at least 130 A.D., or parts of that song did, because there was a church leader who declared that any time the second chapter of Luke is read, the congregation shall sing Gloria. And so part of that song is 1,900 years old or more. And when we're singing it, we're singing a song that has tracked through a time not just covering the time of Christ's birth to right now, but also when that decree in 130 was sent out, we weren't celebrating Christmas. Uh, Christmas wasn't a designated holiday for the Church until until 200 years after that. So this is a song that even predates the Christmas holidays and the Christmas worship services. So it is amazing how long songs change and stay around, excuse me. And another one that has been around for a thousand years is O Come, Come, Emmanuel, written by some unknown monk. But you can hear, when you sing that song, you can imagine monks in an old cathedral, you know, eight or ten of them singing that song and what it must have been like in, say, 1100 to have heard that echo off church walls. I think most singers realize the, the the staying power of a popular Christmas song and long to have that signature Christmas song, that Christmas hit. Uh, in recent times, maybe the one that has really stood out uh, and looks to be one that will be a traditional hit for years and years and years to come is Mary Did You Know? Yeah, written by Mark Lowry. Uh, he was in Houston, Texas at the time working on a cantata his job was to, the music had been selected, his job was to actually write the filler uh, narration between musical songs as his church was performing as a musical Christmas tree. Um, and uh, Lowry got to thinking as he was writing that what it would have been like to have interviewed Mary about her son. And he imagined himself as a news reporter doing that and began to write down his thoughts. And he wrote down those thoughts into a poem and spent two years looking for a songwriter who could set it to music. Eventually found one right next door to him, really, because he was singing with Gaither Quartet. So he, one of Gaither's music, musicians, a harmonica player, looked at it and said, yeah, I can, I, I'm going to try that, and and wrote the music to Mary Did You Know. It happened into the hands of Kathy Matea and became a huge country music hit. Um, and I think is this is the generation of the 80s and 90s, that is the one song, that is probably going to be sung 150 years from now as well. Um, and I think the reason is it's a different point of view. We have never thought about Christmas from Mary's point of view before, uh, musically anyway. And I think that makes it unique. I also think that Skip Ewing, who wrote a song not long after that from Joseph's point of view, and it's a song called uh, It Wasn't His Child. I think it is one of those powerful Christmas songs ever written, it's starting to be recorded more, and I'm not. I, it wouldn't surprise me 20 years from now to have that song as well known as "Mary, Did You Know." And they both are new, and and are, are proof that there are still new ways to look at Christmas and new ways to to write songs about it that had never been thought of before. Ace, we have to go to a break. Yeah, got to go to a break. But real, real quick though, Ace, there's something about that 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 perfect connection between the singer and the songs. A lot of people covered those songs over and over, but one will kind of magically hit, it seems like. It does. I mean, you know, you can't imagine quite Christmas, as you said, a Christmas without Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. You can't imagine Christmas without Nat King Cole singing the Christmas song. And there was a debate on who was going to record that song first. We can talk about that after your break, too. Yeah, let's take a break. We're talking with author Ace Collins, who uh, several years ago wrote this uh, fascinating book about the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. Uh, When we come back, we'll tell you where you can find that book if you've not read it and get into some more of these stories. He's done some great research on this, and uh, I think oftentimes you'll be surprised at uh, how these songs that we still enjoy today and have enjoyed throughout our lives, how they got started, uh, how they were written, and and, uh, the stories behind their recording and things like that. So stay with us. More from author Ace Collins here on AOA coming up. 
Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction. Plus, the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, 800-745-3327, 800-745-3327. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110 and I had a stroke and I'm 33 so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it or talk with your doctor to create an exercise diet and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell Brought to you by the American Heart Association American Medical Association and the Ad Council Recently on Adams on Agriculture, yesterday we discussed the Ag Labor Reform Bill. As I said, there's like 300 ag groups supporting it, including the National Milk Producers Federation and their vice president of government relations, Paul Blyberg, joins us now to talk about it. Paul, thank you for being with us. Uh, This is obviously a critical issue for agriculture in general, the dairy industry in particular. Why are you supportive of this bill? We are supportive in a nutshell because the bill includes provisions that aim to address our two primary goals in the ag labor space. One is obviously reforming the current H-2A program so the dairy can use it, and the provisions of this bill begin to get us into the program. Uh, obviously, the, the year-round component of that program under the bill is capped, but that cap is able to rise over time and eventually goes away, and that's a very important source of, uh, of labor for us. And secondly, the bill also has provisions to legalize our current workforce, and uh, that's also a critically important issue for us, given the, the reliance of the you know, the dairy industry. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. Not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. 
My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Cenex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Cenex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now, don't spend all that free time in one place unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. We are talking with author Ace Collins about the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. Ace, time will get away from us. So I want to just throw out some of the uh, uh, songs that are such a big part of the season and, and let you give us a little background on them. Silent Night, one of our favorites. Uh, what can you tell us about that song? 201 years ago, a young priest was organizing his first Christmas Eve Mass. He was excited about what he was going to do. He went to the church, and the organ wouldn't work. He was panicked because he had built the entire service around music. He ran over to a friend's house, who was a schoolteacher, and said, what do we do? The schoolteacher suggested that he play guitar for the service, but that wouldn't work with the music that had been picked out. Then the priest remembered a poem he had written two years before while visiting an uncle. Together, the priest and the schoolteacher put the poem to music and taught it to their choir. And that is the night that Silent Night saved a Christmas Eve service in Obendorf, Austria. It should have been forgotten there, but somebody had to fix the organ. And so three or four weeks later, when the man who traveled all over Europe fixing organs stopped at this church, he heard the story of the Christmas Eve service, and he also learned the song. Thirty years later, that little priest, Joseph Moore, is walking through Cologne, Germany, and hears his song coming from a cathedral. And he wonders, how had they found out about it? They don't even sing it at his church anymore. Well, the organ repairman had become the Johnny Appleseed of Silent Night and taken it everywhere he worked. And within 30 years, it was the best-known Christmas carol in the world. And by the way, the name of the church where Silent Night was first performed and that priest had his first Christmas Eve service, St. Nicholas. Wow. That is, that is an amazing story, and every time I hear you tell it, I just, I, I'm just i more amazed by it. I, I love that story. Uh, Jingle Bells. What's the story behind Jingle Bells? Jingle Bells is the world's best-known Thanksgiving song. Uh, it was written for a children's Thanksgiving service in 1840 in Medford, Massachusetts, by a preacher's son. It was so popular that they also brought the children's choir back to perform at the Christmas Eve service in that community in Medford. People who were visiting family from New York and Boston took this, that song back to New York and Boston and thought it was a Christmas song. And so here is this song that is a, was inspired, by the way, about teenage, with, by teenage boys uh, drag racing their horse-drawn sleds to impress girls. It became and set in motion the perfect American Christmas with the snow, with the bells, with the horse-drawn sleigh. Courier and Ives jumped on it, everything else. Christmas cards sported those images. And in thanks, and really, in truth, Jingle Bells is a Thanksgiving song and not a Christmas song. And I kind of think of it as an 1840 Beach Boys song because of the racing themes and the, and the teenagers trying to impress their girls. A lot of the songs that we still enjoy today came from around that uh, World War II era, right? Yes. Yeah, the three we mentioned earlier... Uh, you know, White Christmas, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and Have Yourself a Merry Chris- Merry Little Christmas by Judy Garland, which we didn't mention earlier, but it, that's the, those are the trios that came from World War II that were so important. Uh, Judy's song in particular was written for the movie Meet Me in St. Louis, and okay. uh, it had really down lyrics that fit with the script, and Judy wouldn't record it. Because of the down lyrics, they changed the lyrics to being uplifted. And one line in that song was, uh, this may be Christmas last because next year we may be living in the past. Can you imagine how that would have resonated with people in World War II? 
And so she had them rewrite it, and it became a Christmas standard during World War II. It remains a huge hit to this day. And then in 1946, Mel Torme, on a hot day, was working with Bob Wells on a movie uh, score, and they were it was so hot they couldn't work. They were drinking lemonade and sitting around in T-shirts, and Torme, to cool things off, started thinking about his life growing up in New England and wrote down the line, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Within 10 minutes, they had written Chestnuts Roasting on, on an Open Fire, which is really the real title of the Christmas song. Then it became a war. Who do we take it to? Wells wanted to take it to Bing Crosby, and Nat King Cole wanted to take it to, excuse me, uh, Torme wanted to take it to Nat King Cole. Uh, Torme uh, won the battle. They took it to Nat King Cole, and that became the first Christmas song ever introduced by an African-American. And even before Rosa Parks or Jackie Robinson, Nat King Cole broke the color line for Christmas music throughout the United States as radio stations played him for the very first time because of that incredible song. Yeah, those stories are so great. Uh, real quick, before we run out of time, even the story behind White Christmas uh, with Irving Berlin writing the song, that, that has quite a story. It does. He, he wrote the Berlin, America's greatest song scribe at the time, uh, was writing the music for the movie Holiday Inn. And he came to Bing, and he said, man, I've got some great music for you, but the Christmas song is not very good. And Berlin even didn't want to play it for him. And Crosby made him play it for him. And when he played it for him, Crosby said, do not change a thing. Don't write a new song. This is perfect. Crosby was not going to record it until 1942 when they did the movie. And this was late 1941. But after the outbreak of war uh, at Pearl Harbor and the fact that the United States suddenly wasn't secure anymore and young men were and fathers and brothers and sons were headed overseas, Crosby actually sang that song on his Christmas Eve broadcast in 1941. And so people actually heard it and were awed by it 10 months before it actually was released as a record. And um, it is now. Uh, Crosby's version of of that song is the top-selling record of all time. Um, Single record of all time, White Christmas, is number one. Um, the most played, by the way, the most played radio record of all time used to be White Christmas. It has been eclipsed in the last couple of years by Elvis's Blue Christmas. It's now the most programmed uh, song heard on radio throughout the world. Well, Bing and Elvis are my two favorite singers, so I, 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 like, I love them both. Hey, real quick, uh, before we let you go, how can people still find your book? Oh, they can find the book at any of the booksellers. Uh, stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, and there are more stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. Stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. Stories behind the yeah. hits of Christmas are all out there. They're all from HarperCollins, Sondervan. You can find them Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Christian Books, wherever books are sold. You'll find those books. I encourage people to to uh, get a hold of those books and read them. They're fascinating, great reads. Ace, as always, thank you very much. Good to talk with you again. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions.